Welcome back to another episode of Across the Pond. We are now in the double digits. Barry, we're on episode 10. What a surprise, eh? Most podcasts don't get this far, so I'm super chuffed to get to 10 and long may it continue. Absolutely. Pond, across the pond, with Barry and Chad. So the number 10 is not the only sort of reportable thing this week. We actually have, uh, Barry's done a bit of analytics and uh, aggregated all of the listens across all of our various platforms. Obviously, there's quite a few. And we have recently passed 1,000 views and listens. What a milestone, eh? What a milestone. It's, it's crazy to think that we started this, what, Chad, like two months ago probably? Yep. And uh, we kind of assumed that no one would listen because we're starting from scratch, right? And we, we're starting from nothing. Yeah. And uh, we've somehow managed to grow quite a, quite a cool little audience. And it's growing every single week. And so we're very grateful for everyone who has been one of those 1,000. And uh, we look forward to keep providing value, keep these conversations going, and seeing where this podcast goes. So super chuffed. Definitely. Well, let's get into this episode. The Week That Was... So last week, one of our big key topics was the uh, basically what's escalating there with Iran and the US. Um, some developments in this last week uh, where there has actually been an airplane that's been shot down. Um, now, yeah, not quite as clear cut as that, as I'm sure you'd imagine. Um, let's, let's go through it, Barry. So uh, yeah, 176 people, uh, innocent people who were in this airplane that was shot down by a missile. Yeah, so I think it's important to think about the context and in, in which this happened, which is actually the interesting part, right? We spoke about last episode of how the U.S. had done this drone strike on one of Iran's big generals, and there was worries about a retaliation. And Iran, in the aftermath, did retaliate and shot down, well, shot missiles at two U.S. army bases in Iraq um, as kind of their retaliation. Things kind of calmed down over then. Um, and then this plane crash happened, and uh, of course it, it raised a lot of scandal, a lot of drama. And from what has been reported, it seems that there was a plane that was leaving Iran, going to the Ukraine. And just about two or three minutes after takeoff, it was shot down by Iranian forces. And uh, the plane crashed and all, all passengers died, like you said. Um, and for a few days, Iran was denying involvement. Everyone was trying to figure out what happened, why, who shot down the plane, etc., etc. And after a bit of a media uh, storm and whatnot, Iran came out and admitted that they had shot down the plane unintentionally, which was obviously quite a, quite a, a crazy thing to admit and a crazy thing to talk about. Um, and so everyone around the world was quite livid, especially, like, I think there were Canadians on board, there were UK citizens yeah. on board, there were a couple countries on board. So a lot of presidents of various countries st stood up and said, this is not good enough. And basically the story that they are going with, and who knows if it's true or not, but the story they're going with is that one of their um, defense, I don't know what to call it, missile launches or whatever, um, acted independently without proper authorization or without checking that this was the right plane to shoot down. And they mistook it for a missile coming into Iran. So they mistook the plane for a missile. So something went wrong with the radar or something. And the story is that the guy had about 10 seconds to decide whether he was going to pull the trigger or not. Um, and he was trying to communicate with his superior or with the plane itself or whatever uh, whatever communication needed to happen, and that communication was faulty. And so he took the decision by himself, apparently, to shoot down this plane. Um, and so obviously Iran are livid with him, and everyone around the world is livid with Iran because this tragedy was completely avoidable, and it really added unnecessary fuel to this this fire that's going on in the Middle East. So a really, really weird situation, a very tragic situation for those passengers and their families. 
Um, and it just kind of shows the powder keg that that relationship is at at the moment and how may, how high the stakes are. And everyone seems to be on tender hooks and on, on edge at the moment. Um, so really, really strange situation there. Yeah, absolutely. What a devastating incident that was. Um, and I mean, I think... I think Let's just kind of unpack it a bit here. So uh, the, the three days that Iran denied involvement. Now, I mean, this wasn't just a subtle denial. Um, this was quite an express denial where they actually had somebody from the Civil Aviation Authority, that side, uh, come, come over and make a statement um, where, you know, he basically confirmed out like point blank that this was not a missile and it almost looks like there was enough evidence against against this statement from uh, you know other media sources and and from other nations around the world um that they kind of almost just felt this building up pressure and um, where they actually had to give in and uh, concede that this is what actually happened now why do you think they would deny it um if it is something that they themselves uh, detest and they themselves are looking to prosecute for yeah, I think they deny it because of the the media, the the, the storm that's going to hit them now, and kind of the the stigma around Iran at the moment. So this kind of this kind of action and this kind of mistake, if you want to call it that, is really really poor for their dip diplomatic standing when it comes to all the various treaties and sanctions against Iran, and also it, it damages their relationship now with the U.S. That was sort of like almost a little bit more stabilized after the after the two attacks and. They were kind of in a position where they had retaliated, but not in a way that it started even more chaos. Um, and this was unnecessary completely. So I think that they were caught with their tail between their legs and, and, and figured eventually, once enough information had came out, it, it was probably not, not possible to deny it any further. And what is also quite important is that the actual Iranian citizens on the ground actually stood up and started protesting and rioting because of this against their own governments. Yeah. So it wasn't just international pressure, it was actually local pressure as well. And I watched some of the videos of some of the citizens um, in the streets and, and, and shouting and protesting against the Iranian government for what happened. And it just kind of showed that even the Iranian citizens are not happy with the status quo when it comes to the government and how they, how they run their, their things and their, and, and their country. Um, and so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of pressure there. And so this denial and then the final admittance, I think it's just bowing to social pressure. That, that's kind of my impression. Yeah, I, co I completely agree. I mean, in this apology, um, he almost qualifies it slightly um, by blaming it on U.S. adventurism. Um, now, obviously, that refers to, um, you know, possibly thinking that this was an incoming missile um, and obviously a very relevant um, case in terms of the, the timelines that this has happened. Um, but, I mean, this sort of mislabeling of an aircraft could have happened at any other time. Um, so, you know, do you think it's fair to to qualify such an apology um, and, and, and blame it on the U.S.? Yeah, I'm not sure if it's fair. It certainly makes sense as an excuse, right? If you were trying to make an excuse, it makes a lot of sense because, as you were, as we were saying, like both countries are kind of on tender hooks. Like I'm pretty sure that the defense systems in the U.S. are on high alert at the moment, waiting for something sure. to happen. And same in Iran, right? So if if you see something on your radar and in the heat of the moment you kind of you make a mistake and you think it's something that it isn't, and this is the most generous interpretation of what could have yeah. happened, right? But if you if you generally made a mistake, you can understand why he's on high alert. Because because of what's happened in the last two weeks. And you, they, they might be expecting some sort of a, more attacks from the US. So I understand the excuse. Whether it's fair or not, that's, that's up for debate. And it's, it's so hard to tell just from reading news stories. I'm always very, very skeptical and very 
cautious when looking at news stories and trying to infer motive or trying to infer what actually happened because yeah. you can see that the story they've put out to the media is, is, is watertight and the excuse makes sense and it all kind of works in how Iran is trying to um, narrate the situation and how they're trying to spin the situation. Um, no one actually knows what really happened behind those doors. Um, and for, for one, to also to blame it not only on, on U.S. expansionism, but to blame it on this one guy who was this missile like pilot, or I don't know what you call it, um, I don't know, defense defense pilot, yeah. um, is also a bit strange. And, and not to take full accountability as, as the Iran government, we made it, or Iran defense force, we made a mistake. Rather, it's just one missile guy who acted independently. It's a, yeah. bit, it's a bit strange, that for me. Yeah, I mean, regardless of what uh, what the truth is behind this, um, I mean, the actual fact that 176 people are dead is absolutely devastating, um, and and certainly something I don't think the world should just uh, you know take a glance over. Um, yeah, absolutely devastating event. Um, now moving on to uh, something less devastating, but crisis actually um you know the royal family are in crisis at the moment um you know a lot of people just look at this and and think uh, you know it's, it's actually fairly natural that um royals at some stage in their uh, progression might want to remove themselves from the institution and uh, and go on the private side um but this is actually a, a huge event um so yeah harry and megan have put out a statement that they want to step down as senior royal members, um, and uh, yeah, quite a, quite a few things behind that. So if we if we look into kind of the main reasons for this, um, certainly through the media sources that I've uh, consumed uh, since this has taken place, um, I believe Meghan didn't want to just be a voiceless figurehead, um, but. There was a bit of contrast there because whenever she did speak up, she received a lot of criticism for it. So you can you can you can understand how uh, th that can leave a person uh, you know feeling powerless. Um, so if we look at some of the other things, uh, British media have been treating them badly. Now, obviously, this is really relevant uh, for Prince Harry, who lost his mother um, on the hands of uh, media. And uh, yeah, basically uh, an accident that happened in, in Paris. Um, they are looking to financial independence. Now, this is quite an interesting one um, because, of course, their lifestyle at the moment is funded through the royal family and I believe uh, by Prince Charles himself. Um, so this is also an, an interesting one. And uh, there's also been reports that uh, Meghan Markle has signed a deal with Disney um, to do a voiceover in one of the projects uh, on in the near future. Um, they are proposing that they will be spending their time uh, sort of on a split basis between the UK and North America. Um, and uh, also uh, some other reporters having interviewed Megan uh, just not too long ago, suggesting that it's potentially after she had a baby um, that some of these royal pressures and, you know, all of these royal duties going to certain events and, and, and all of these types of things that the pressure really started to build. Um, so, yeah, this is quite quite an interesting one. Obviously, the, the, the royal palace really, really um, quite annoyed, which is why it's also such a big event. Normally, um, in the royal scenario, we see you know, no no emotion being showed on all sides. It's kind of kept within the walls, kept within the boundaries of of the family. Um, but it's very clear that that they are not happy about it. There's been a formal statement uh, that has been released by the palace, um, and uh, and of course, there's also been direct, um, basically direct defiance here from uh, from Prince Harry, um, who the Queen actually asked to hold off from announcing to the public be, until there was actually some sort of discussion uh, within the family. And he defied her. He put out that announcement. Um, and also, sorry, there's a lot to talk through here. And also, uh, the announcement happened on uh, Kate's birthday. Um, there's also been some, uh, you know, back and forth with 
William and Harry not seeing ITI of, of recent times. And so the timing of this announcement is also seen as quite an interesting one. So, yeah, basically, from the looks of it, um, a lot of people saying there's a bit of a loose cannon on the, on the hands um, where Harry is, uh, you know, doing all of these announcements. The Queen really not pleased about it. Um, and, yeah, in terms of timing, uh, it couldn't have been worse either. Yeah, it's all it's all very strange to me. Like I must admit, I'm very out of my depth when it comes to the royal family and following all all the ongoings and whatnot. But it's been very clear that Harry and Meghan have been the most progressive and the most kind of rebellious kind of uh, royal family members for for a while now. And it kind of talks to half of it feels like celebrity gossip, right? Half of it feels like tabloid stuff. But because it's the royal family, it's got this extra weight and this extra importance because of the importance of the royalty to the UK and to the, the country as a whole, right? Um, and so it's a very strange situation. I, I completely understand kind of, the, kind of the box that they must feel they are in yeah. um, as, as royal family members. Like they must feel their lives are very controlled and they don't have much freedom. They don't really have the freedom to raise a family like they might want to. They don't have the freedom to kind of pursue their own goals and their own kind of objectives for life. And you've kind of been born into the system where you You've got this role to play. You've to put this royal mask on and be yeah. this like perfect idealized person and this perfect family that's going to pose for photos and shake hands and wave and kiss babies and all that good stuff. Um, and I, I can imagine the kind of the the inner turmoil that comes from wanting to do something different. And so for me, I think it's good. I think it's good that they, they step up and they and they decide, cool, I want a different life for myself. Yep. And uh, from what I've read, obviously there's a lot of hoopla and there's a lot of a lot of chaos at the moment. But from what I've read, it sounds like all the money they want to make, they want to donate directly to charities under their charitable trust. Okay. So it's so I think the idea is they're going to go into professional work and make their own money, so be financially independent from the royal family. But all of that money will go to the various charitable trusts that they've they've setting up. So they've got a I think they've got a, a brand called Royal Sussex or Sussex Royal or something. Um, which they've already started making some money on to, don to donate. And so my understanding is that all the money they're going to earn is going to go to various charities that they support. So this is actually, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a step forward for the royal family. I think that um, they need to be more modernized and more kind yeah. of progressive when it comes to how they do things. Otherwise, they're, they're going to become ir irrelevant, right? And a lot of people have been t talking about their relevance has been waning in the last couple of decades. And so if the royalty is going to continue to play an important role in, in, in that world and continue to play an important kind of role model for the UK, um, I think they need to be more progressive. So for me, I think it's a good sign, but I'm sure there are people who are fans of traditional royalty and how, this, how things are supposed to be done that might disagree with me. Yeah, I completely agree there. Um, the thing here is um, in terms of, you know, going about that modern sort of transition um, that the family needs to go through, um, Harry and Meghan were seen as quite a big asset on that front. Uh, they were seen as an, a couple that was able to bring the royal family through um, to this, you know, current age. Um, and, and their loss would certainly um, hamper that. Now, this is why I think it's quite interesting and actually news just in literally half an hour ago as we record this, um, that the Queen has agreed a transition for them. Um, so I think what's going to be really interesting here to see is what sort of roles they retain. Um, obviously, Harry has had quite, uh, quite a key role with the military, obviously serving uh, some time in a senior level in Afghanistan. Um, and, and that seems to be quite an important thing to keep. Um, obviously, we've, we've spoken about, you know, the charity work that they've done as well. And I, I think those are going to be important bits to do, too. Um, so I think that's going to be interesting one to see how this uh, sort of changes on um, to sort of dial it down a little bit and, uh, and look at something uh, slightly, slightly light. Um, 
as soon as the announcement came out, uh, Madame Tussauds, the uh, basically museum of wax figures, um, had a, an exhibition, which I've visited myself, of the royal family. Um, and, and yeah, straight away, they removed uh, the wax figures of Harry and, uh, and Meghan, which I think is absolutely hilarious. Um, you know, before anything has actually even gone through, you know, before there's been any real discussions on it, um, straight away they, they remove the figures and I'm, I have no doubt um, have increased their, their visitor numbers in the, in, in the, in the midst of that. It's, it's a marketing masterclass. It really is a brilliant stroke of, of marketing. Um, it's definitely, I mean, as we're talking about it here, so it's a fantastic piece of marketing for them. Um, I'm sure they're making lots and lots of money from the guys going in to take that, that photo of the missing, the missing <laughs> figures um, and sending that to all their friends and around the world. Um, so it's a genius, genius marketer there for that. Yeah, certainly certainly a unique piece in history. Um, just the, the final thing I wanted to kind of chat about. So, I mean, as you mentioned, their, their transition into professional life um, it is really looked on negatively for anyone to cash in on the royal brand and certainly the brand that uh, you know Harry and Meghan have developed over time now obviously they they got married on state funds and and that's you know quite a quite a costly uh, procession that they had um so you know so soon after that procession, um, I think it's only been not even two full years, um, they've come about this move. And uh, in, in this move to, to become you know, financially independent, uh, do you think there's a risk that they are, are cashing in on their, on their royal name? And also, um, in terms of their, their funding, their own security, now that's quite a big thing. At the moment, their, their, their security is, is all funded by the state. Um, if you look at the example of Princess Diana, a couple of commentators saying that had she had royal uh, security at that time, um, that you know disaster may not have ever happened. Um, so I certainly don't think this is going to be a cheap bill to fit. Yeah, definitely. I think I think the arguments about cashing in is is a bit weak from my perspective because I kind of see the royal family as cashing in on their brand already, right? Sure. The amount of wealth that they control and the amount of kind of power that they have is purely on the basis of the brand, yeah. right? You, you can you can you can argue about what value they add to society and what value they add in a certain in a certain like. I don't know, idealistic type formats when it comes to setting an example for the British people. But the reality in my mind is that their brand is what carries them forward and the immense amount of wealth that they, they keep getting from, from Parliament and from the tax money and all and from the endowments and all that kind of stuff is purely based off the brand. Yeah. So for me, I would love to see some of that wealth be transferred to people who really need it and uh, be used for some good. Um, I, 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 for one, I, I worry about those kind of institutions that um, kind of hoard that wealth and use it for this <clears throat> this um, passing it down generation, 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 yeah. just on the basis of, of your bloodline. Um, so for me, I, I think it's a weak argument. I think that I hope that they you do more with the wealth and do more with the money. I, I think the royals have a really interesting opportunity here, if they look at it like this, to really change the way that royalty is seen around the world. There's so few monarchs left, right? All, most of the monarchs around the world have kind of disappeared, and there's very few left. And you could really set a new precedent for what a 21st century monarchy could look like if you turn all of that power and all of that branding into doing something really good for the world. And that could also be a great marketing ploy for Britain itself and for the UK to kind of... Um, work and and try and improve their standing and their moral standing after all the colonization that happened in the last 200 years. Um, and so I think it's an opportunity here, even though it's it kind of it's a big slap in the face for for traditionalists and for the queen itself. Um, but I think I think it's an opportunity here, and I'm for I'm for one I'm excited to see what's going to happen. 
Um, there's certainly going to be lots of drama in the coming months, so we'll have to wait and see what happens. Absolutely. I mean, from, from these articles that I read, um, you know, the Queen, to me, doesn't strike me as being somebody who's, uh, you know, locked off to change. If we look at some of the moves she's taken in the past, and, and certainly even in this move, um, her only prerequisite was that he resolves this with his father first. And so, for me, uh, she, you know, she wasn't completely shut off to it, um, but she was rather more concerned that he, he had the discussion with his father, who I believe wasn't too forthcoming um and uh, yeah i completely agree with you i think it's it's an interesting one to see how this uh, changes and uh, an important one and an opportunity uh, so we'll certainly see what happens there moving on to our next story now this one's been developing for some time and um, we've heard of De debenhams in the uk going through some financial difficulty and hinting at store closures for some time uh, but now they've actually uh, basically confirmed that they're going to be closing 50 stores uh, from what i can recall over two and a half thousand employees losing their jobs as a result of that um, and I think here there's a wider wider discussion to have in terms of how relevant high street stores are going to be in the future obviously we've seen internet shopping and internet marketplaces develop so quickly over the last few years um, you know how relevant do you think these high street stores are going to be in uh, years mm -hmm. to come Chad, I must plead my ignorance here is that, and that I don't even know what Debenhams sells. So for yeah. the South African listeners, can you give us a sense of, of what kind of what kind of stuff they sell? Yeah, so Debenhams is kind of, um, for the South African listeners, I would, I would probably compare them most to, uh, to Woolworths. Now, there's a couple of these types of institutions in the UK uh, where they've got you know, quite a wide range of stuff, um, predominantly clothing, um, but of course also jewelry and makeup and, you know, all of those bits as well, um, including home homeware and all of that type of thing. Um, you know, there's there's quite a few of those types of stores here. We've got John Lewis, um, you know, there's uh, quite, quite a few others as well. So I think that's probably the, the, the best uh, comparison to, to make. Um, but I mean, you know, that aside, uh, you know, in terms of this wider discussion, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's 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 the big debates within retail itself. It's probably the biggest the biggest retail trend we're seeing, and that's because of the ongoing pressure from online shopping and online interactions. And the fact that online shopping has allowed someone to sit at their house and do all the research online and order something to their door that arrives the next day has kind of really changed the way that people shop. And so the high street stores that used to be kind of the, the flagship places for people to go and spend their time browsing items and finding the right things for their house or for their closet, whatever the story is, those times are changing. Um, and so a lot of retail stores are having to rethink the experience of shopping and rethink the, how a shop actually works. And I think a lot of the pessimists who believe that the retail is going to disappear have been wrong in that case. I yeah. think that the high street stores have actually stuck around for a different reason than we thought. Yeah. And the reason is because of that experience that we talk about, right? A lot of people still do want to feel and touch and try on their stuff before they buy it. Definitely. Not everyone has got into this idea of just ordering it online and kind of sending it back if it doesn't fit. And so that kind of experiential shopping is what has changed. And so the shops that are able to change the way they think about their retail spaces and kind of get rid of the old paradigm and move to this new paradigm, they've stuck around. And the older shops who aren't able to change the way they think about it are going to disappear over time. Yeah. So, for example, I think of a lot of bookstores here in South Africa, and a lot of them have realized that people are buying a lot more books online, not necessarily in the store. So they've started changing pieces of their store to be a coffee shop or to be a restaurant or to be yeah. a seated area for people to work. So giving different parts of the store to enable people to spend more time in that store for different reasons and providing an experience that's worth coming to rather than just a bookshop. 
And so I kind of see the same parallel in the retail space. And so I personally think that the high street stores are probably in the best position to take advantage of that if they are willing to change, because there are those flagship stores. I think the stores that I have to worry are those in the smaller areas or in the less fancy areas, the kind of the second, third, and fourth tier stores where the experience, they can't deliver it because either the margin's not, not high enough or they don't have the budget to deliver that kind yeah. of that high class experience. Um, so it's interesting to see what's going to happen there. What do you think, Chad? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I myself, uh, probably one of the reasons um, for you know all of those analysts being wrong about the the change uh, even up to date. I still uh, want you know if if I want something, I want it now. I'm, I can't stand to wait a day or two for it to arrive in the post. Um, and I suppose that's uh, that's typical of the millennial generation as well. We want we want things and we want them now, um, which which is interesting. But at the same time, um, you know, a lot more and more people are in enjoying and, uh, you know, taking full advantage of uh, the benefits of online shopping. Um, I wanted to actually throw onto here a, a bit of a case study. Um, for anyone not in the UK, there is a sh- uh, basically a chain called Argos, um, where it's it's kind of a hybrid between online and high street, where they actually have a very, very limited shop front um, that essentially has a whole bunch of tablets where you can walk into and, and order whatever you need. And then they've got a warehouse at the back of the store um, that you can essentially get whatever you want now, um, where they're basically using the best, uh, basically u- the, using the best of both, um, getting getting that benefit in terms of uh, space and rentals and and racking and all of that type of stuff, um, and also the benefits of being able to pick something up now. Um, have you ever heard of them? And and what do you think of this? I have heard of the chain. I hadn't heard that they were doing that in their stores, but I have seen a lot of ideas around these kind of concept stores, like you say, where instead of trying to stock all 10,000 varieties in front of the customer, they'll stock everything in their warehouses and then have a limited showroom, almost yeah. like a car showroom, where they show their best items um, to give you a sense of what, what, what is available, but everything is behind the doors so that the actual experience as a shopper is much better. So I think it's a great idea, and I think that's where the, the top retail stores have to go, right? And I think, Chad, I remember chatting to you about doing our board course back in the day, yes. the <laughs> idea of having like screens and lots of technology yes. in these fr- in these storefronts um, to try and change the experience of something more magical and something more unique. Yeah. I know that Nike in their flagship store in New York have taken away most of their sneakers and have basically have a, a, a tablet or an iPad where you can go and design your own sneaker in store. So you pick the shape, you pick the style, you pick the colors, you pick the label all of that stuff and then you click submit and then it gets made for you and you collect it like the next day or, or, or two or three days later and so those are the kind of technological experiences that I think are going to come into play and you can use things like AR things like VR things like this tech on, and screens and whatnot to change the way the shopping is done and as you say merge the online and the offline world and that kind of innovation is what needs to happen if your store is going to stay exactly the same as it was 10 years ago you're going to become irrelevant very very fast Yes, I do definitely distinctly remember um, Barry trying to do a virtual reality change room um, for for the project that we had at hand. But you're completely right. I mean, I think uh, as as this uh, evolves, as retail evolves, um, you know, these you, the use of technologies is uh, you know becoming more and more important. And uh, you know, things like things like that experience uh, with with the Nike store, I have seen some similar cases uh, here in the UK as well. Um, you know, where you can go in and, and create a custom set of sneakers, um, which is definitely very cool. So yeah, we'll, we'll have to see what happens there. But uh, I mean, hopefully, um, in terms of all, all of the high street uh, stores that are closing down, um, hopefully all of those uh, employees can uh, learn to stay relevant and, uh, and shift 
uh, as the case is, um, you know, just in terms of in terms of their their daily lifestyles and uh, and financial well being. Just one more idea there that just came to me uh, when I was in Berlin a couple months ago, um, actually a while ago now. Uh, we actually went on a tour of one of the one of the lower income areas of Berlin, and we went with this company. And they were, what they were doing was they were taking storefronts that were no longer being able to pay their rent, so they kind of foreclosed on their storefronts, and there was these empty spaces in the middle of Berlin that weren't being used. And what they would go in is they would go in and they would change that space to be used for something creative. So they'd give an artist a residency in that space, or a sculptor, or they would have um, second-hand clothing stores, or, or trying to transform those retail storefronts to something that's kind of culturally vibrant and yeah culturally valuable um, in place of the empty storefronts because the stores couldn't stay couldn't stay alive or couldn't survive because of the rents going up. So that's another idea when you think about like retail space, that the land that those stores own yeah. is worth an incredible amount of money. And so if even if they don't keep it as a traditional store, if they had to think about how how do I get my brand to be more creative and provide this magical experience for my customers in a way that's completely different to what I traditionally think of as my brand? There could be interesting opportunities there. So for example, if a Nike decided, cool, we're not selling enough sneakers in the store, what if we turn this into, into an art exhibition for Nike-related art and do something like that? That can change the entire experience and you can host events and host all sorts of other things in that space. So it's also a way of thinking about even if you don't stick with a traditional retail model, those stores storefronts and those physical spaces are still especially valuable and when you change your mindset around how to use that space there's a lot of magic that can happen i just thought i'd share that 100 completely agree i mean all of these sorts of shopping centers um even without a main anchor store are, are, are gonna have footfall coming through uh, because of the restaurants because of the sort of um you know other other sort of activities like movies and and those kinds of things i think a lot of shopping centers also latching onto the idea of of throwing a gym in there um, which I've certainly seen in the UK, and I think for a long time that was, uh, you know, something that wasn't really done. Um, why would you waste retail space um, on a, a prime location for a for a gym? And and now we we've, we've seen that happen. So uh, definitely a useful way of of getting the best out of that space. Um, moving on to the next one, uh, Barry. I've I've I believe uh, the uh, infamous load shedding is possibly back <laughs> yeah it's the, it's the never-ending story and all my optimism from the christmas period has been somewhat <laughs> muted by by some threats of oncoming load shedding so at the moment we are fine but there there are threats that as people get back into work and the mines start operating again and everyone goes back to school and back to work after the after the break that things might get a bit hairy and we actually had a quite a quite an in retrospect quite an amusing thing happened this this past friday where there was a, a substation in krugersdorp by the by the main international airport here in Johannesburg that blew up on the weekend and it cuts all the power to the airport itself. Wow. So I remember going onto social media and seeing these video clips of people trying to collect their baggage with their torch lights on their phone and trying to find the right gates with their torch lights on their phone. It, it looked like a zombie movie. It looked like a horror movie wow. in an abandoned airport. But all the airport kept functioning. Apparently, no flights were missed. Everything worked. Everything they had to do like manual stuff and all that kind of chaos. But it was quite amusing to watch the kind of the, what happens when you're in this airport that's completely dark. And for those who've never been to the Johannesburg airport, it's quite big as an airport. Like it's quite difficult if you've never been there before to figure out where you're supposed to go. And so without the lights and without the signage, it's a, it becomes even more challenging. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing there is actually the, the safety risk. Um, so having worked in retail myself, um, I actually actually know whenever there was no electricity in the mall, we would actually close the shop completely, um, you know, just because of the, the threat of, of some sort of uh, violence or, or something happening. And in a, in a scenario where you're, you're in an airport, um, I'm sure security are on high alert there as well. Definitely. And, and I'm, I'm not actually sure how long it lasted for. I'm assuming that they'd have some sort of back. I would hope they'd have some sort of backup for an important organ, an important black building like that. But like you say, like the security risks are, are serious in those kind of situations. And as South African companies, all these companies now are having to think about plan B, plan C, plan D um, when it comes to what is their process for when this happens. And so I don't think load sheddings come to an end. I think we're going to have some, some troubling times over the next few months. And so this is going to come up again and again and again. And as South Africans, we have to try and be as positive as possible and try and run our lives as normally as possible and get around all these obstacles that ESCOM puts in our way. I mean, while we, while we talk about that, um, Barry, have you heard about Love Island? <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. I have heard about Love Island. Um, and my, my, sister, my sister loves it. And so she tells me all about it. Um, tell me about Love Island, Chad. I mean, the only interesting he thing here for me is, uh, so basically it started uh, this last week. It started on Sunday night. Um, and it is a, a British production, um, one that, that uh, takes the, the country by storm every summer and is generally, uh, you know, on some exotic location, uh, Mallorca having been the location of choice uh, in the past. But what they, what they kind of wanted to do was throw in an extra season every year. And so they, they, they scouted out Cape Town as a, a possible, um, you know, location for this. And they actually are, are filming and, uh, and doing this whole uh, production in Cape Town. So the thing that I thought interesting was whether they've thought about load shedding and whether they've thought about uh, not having electricity, um, you know, throughout their, their production. I mean, I, I certainly thought, and, and even from the first episode, I certainly think, uh, you know, Tourism South Africa is going to strongly benefit from uh, this production. But uh, if we see no electricity, um, you know, it might turn very quickly the other way. Yeah, you'd hope they've taken some advice from local production companies who understand the challenges of shooting in South Africa. Um, but I think Cape Town Cape Town's definitely one of the most beautiful places in the world. So I think it's a great choice. And let's hope they do a good job. I didn't even realize they were shooting in Cape Town. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so definitely tune in there, Barry, um, for all the, the latest uh, <laughs> goss. That will not be happening. That will not be happening. <laughs> Moving on to the next one, uh, we've seen Justin Bieber having released uh, a new single, Yummy, uh, which happened uh, a few weeks back as far as I can remember. Um, and yeah, I mean, essentially hitting the news page this last week um, for essentially sharing one of his fans' posts um, that essentially try to get this track to number one, um, but not necessarily um, through ethical ways. Uh, basically, all sorts of solutions, like uh, creating a playlist that just had the track on repeat and repeat and just literally playing the track while you sleep. Um, from that to even creating a VPN so that it looks like these streams are coming from different countries. Um, very interesting. Um, but the thing, interesting thing here is how he reposted uh, this fan's slideshow. Yeah, I didn't actually see the story, but it sounds typical Justin Bieber. I mean, it's, it's one of those things you, you come to expect from him. Um, and the ethics of this is interesting because this kind of this kind of gaming the system has happened in every media form, right? So this is the first time I've heard about it in music. But I know a lot about it in the book in the book realm, where the, the New York Times bestseller list is like this huge coveted kind of ranking system. And there's been lots of stories in the past of people gaming that system by 
buying like 10,000 copies of their book themselves and keeping it in a warehouse to make sure the book gets to number one and whatnot. So I think I'm always a bit skeptical of these ranking systems. And with music, I can assume it's even worse because your algorithms determine like which new listeners are going to find that song. And so you need to get your song up there right to the top so that everyone who is not listening to Justin Bieber will get it recommended on whatever playlist or whatever algorithm they have. And so this whole algorithmic curation of, of media has certainly changed the game as to what marketing looks like. Marketing is not anymore going on a, a world tour and doing a thousand arenas and kind of doing it like that. Yep. You're trying to hit the top rankings. You're trying to get on the top talk shows around the world. You're trying to get in the top YouTubers and all the influencers. You want them to be talking about your, your projects. Um, and so it's just another example of how marketing and media has changed. And uh, the ethics around this stuff is is difficult to to say because it's not illegal what he's doing, yeah. right? From what I've from what I've heard, it's not illegal, and it determines it kind of throws a bit of a bit of worry about these rankings and kind of the the gaming of the system. Definitely. Um, I mean, this track I believe has had mixed reviews since uh, since coming out. So um, I think I think it's quite it's quite funny that there's uh, this push to get it to number one when it's clearly not working for for the masses i don't mind it so bad myself um what do you think barry it's a surprise because it's justin bieber so i would have assumed yeah. that anything he made would go number one <laughs> immediately just based on his fan base so maybe maybe he's lost a real relevance i don't know interesting we'll we'll certainly see how uh, his relevance develops now let's move on to our next segment stuff i found interesting All right, so in the stuff I find interesting for this week, we're going to return to a blog series that I mentioned a couple episodes ago from an amazing blog called Wait But Why. And Chad, I don't know if you remember, but we we chatted about this like long series of basically mini books that he's putting on the internet, talking about the political situation in the US and trying to explain why there's such a huge kind of gap between the left and the right and why everyone hates each other, basically. Um, And so the I think that the 10th chapter just come out, so I recently read the 9th chapter, and as, as always, I recommend that series to anybody. It's a lot of reading, but it's really, really well done. And so I just wanted to pull out one idea from the 9th chapter that really st- like kind of st- uh, stood with me and kind of stuck with me, and that was the idea of intellectual conviction. So I'm going to preface this by saying that kind of how we think about conviction and how confident we are when we speak about something kind of determines what the listeners think our knowledge is, right? So if I kind of speak very confidently about a certain topic, yeah. the, 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 the confidence kind of pulls through and kind of um, shows on your side of the conversation that I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And so if I'm to speak with some sort of hesitation or I'm not quite sure what I'm tra- talking about, that comes through as well, yeah. regardless of the content, right? So unless you have a good understanding of what the topic is and you can spot my flaws or spot that I've got gaps in my knowledge, my confidence breeds my competence in a way. Yep. And so intellectual conviction is one of these things of it's just it become charismatic kind of expressions of, your, of what you think. And often in, in this kind of world, the people who speak the loudest and the most articulately kind of get shown as the experts in their field. And there's a small issue with that because what this blog post kind of unravels is the fact that nothing is black and white and we don't actually know anything. <laughs> everything, and that's a scary scary statement to make, yeah. um, everything, everything we know is based on observation, is based on experiments, is based on kind of gut feelings or intuitions or, or a whole bunch of different things. And if you want to see something, if you want to look for a fact in today's world, you can go online and see 18 different versions of that fact from different points of view and different opinions, yep. right? And so there's very there's very few things in this world that we've actually decided objectively as the human race that this is the truth and this is the fact. And what that means is that in most intellectual conversations, 
um, the ones, the people who are actually intellectually honest and intellectually humble enough to admit that they don't know for certain something, those are the ones who are, are, are actually who we should be looking to for, for guidance and for wisdom. And that kind of nuance in thinking and that humility when it comes to, I, I think this, but I could be proved wrong in the future. And I'm willing to change my mind if different evidence comes to me. That kind of willingness to change your mind is not what's celebrated in today's world. Yep. What's celebrated in today's world is the charisma and the conviction that I know what I'm talking about and I'm going to tell you what's right. Yep. And so that conviction is, is completely opposed to the kind of humility that I'm speaking about. And what this blog post says is that the wisest people that we know doubt everything that they know. And so we should be celebrating that kind of doubt and that kind of nuance because what it shows is intellectual um, humility that is realistic about what we know about the world. Yep. And so the more sophisticated thinkers are able to reason with that and able to juggle those contradictions in their head and they're able to withhold judgment until they've done enough research, the ones who talk, 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 talk often are hiding intellectual insecurities or gaps in their knowledge. So I thought that was interesting from that post. What do you think, Chad? I think this is a fascinating conversation. I think it's an incredibly important one. Um, for a long period of time, I've always struggled with these personalities that you know, throw out facts and, and get so much following, so much um, you know, belief when it's quite clear that a lot of the time there's no actual um, underlying knowledge there. There's no actual uh, expertise. Um, so I, I completely agree. Um, and, and I think this idea of in intellectual conviction is, is a really important one. Um, I certainly try to myself um, be very you know, honest with, with, with my knowledge and, and my gaps. Um, and, and I think intellectual awareness here is, is quite, uh, quite important as well. Basically, while I was in my articles, I uh, did a bit of a, a training session um, where there was this phenomenon of, uh, you know, the four, the four sort of scales. So are you, and this, this applies to any particular topic, are you consciously competent, unconsciously competent, consciously incompetent, or unconsciously incompetent? And it's really important. It's really important to have that sort of awareness um, and, and to project based on the right one. I think it's a really great uh, blog post and I, I definitely need to go and uh, do some reading up on it um, because I think, yeah, I think we've for, for far too long just listened to the loudest voices and uh, and not actually stripped the the contents um, close, closely enough. And even, even more practically than that, I've seen this play out in boardrooms and in meeting rooms in every place that I've worked in the past, right? You'll have a boardroom, say, of 10 people around the room and everyone's discussing a certain topic. And there's, some, there's one quiet person in the corner who has the right answer and knows exactly what to do, yeah. but is unable to speak up because of all the other extroverts and, and, and whatnot around the table. So there's been a little bit of psycho psychological research about the power of introversion and the power of this kind of humility in, in boardroom situations. But it takes strong leaders who are willing to say, I don't know, or are willing to admit that they're not sure of a certain thing, or are just, are just um, kind of convinced and want to make sure that everyone is heard around that table. Yep. So I think in our personal lives, we can take this forward and at every bri you go to, every dinner that you go to, first of all, we'd be willing to say you don't know something when you don't know it, um, but have the curiosity then to, once you've admitted that, to then figure out, cool, how can I find out more about this? How can I learn from your opinion? Yep. And how can I learn from someone who disagrees with me? So if I, if I have this, this conviction or this belief that I think is absolutely watertight, that's great and that's an amazing place to be. 
But the way to think about that is not to then ignore anything against that watertight belief. The idea is I want to test this idea against the strongest counter-argument I can find. And that means going to someone that you disagree with and saying, where is the hole in my argument? Yep. Point me to the hole. I want to find the hole because that's how I make progress. Definitely. So I kind of liken it to instead of sticking your head in the sand and just saying, I believe what I believe because of this X, Y, and Z, be like, cool, that's where I stand today. But I want to make sure that those beliefs are as true as possible. And so I want to expose myself to all the other counter arguments and make sure that there's no holes that they can poke. And if they can poke a hole, that's not a personal thing. It's not Definitely. an ego-driven thing. That's a, cool, I was wrong. I didn't realize that. And I can update my opinions. Yep. And unfortunately, not nearly enough people are doing that because the incentive is to be confident and with conviction all the time. And so it takes kind of a groundswell of people to get rid of that ego and, and understand that 90% of stuff we believe is, is probably wrong, right? It was probably got places to improve and things to update over time. And if we aren't willing to do that updating, then we're never going to get anywhere as a society. Absolutely agreed. I mean, I even on the on the sort of other extreme find uh, find coming into interactions with people where they have, a, um, have an opinion. Um, but as soon as you start you know, just asking a couple of thought-provoking questions, it becomes quite clear that they haven't actually thought it through, that they actually don't have an opinion, but they rather are putting one forward just so that they have something to say, um, which I find really interesting. I mean, you 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 mentioned speaking, having conversations at Bry's, and it and it was at a Bry where I where I had this, um, and and I did I, I did challenge a view. Um, and it became very clear to me that there was, you know, no real thought behind this. So let's be part of that groundswell, um, and let's uh, let's sort of certainly test our theories. Let's not take things personally. Um, this is something that I myself need to do a lot of work on, um, being an extre extremely sort of sensitive um, person. Um, but you're right. I mean, I think we we need to be able to have those uh, have those discussions. Look at where the gaps in our knowledge come in, and look at where we haven't actually thought of somebody else's perspective. Um, and uh, and yeah, I mean, essentially, to develop, we, we need to have the full picture at hand. Um, and and yeah, I, I agree with you there completely. I think I think the way that we need to think about this when you want to try and make that progress is that our ideas and what we believe need not define our identity. Yep. Right. So when someone challenges something that seemingly identifies us or some sort of racial group we're part of or religion or a, a way of thinking or a career choice or whatever whatever those labels we give to ourselves are. The more we can detach from those labels and realize that Barry is not that label, yep. right? Or that label is not Barry. That allows me to have a genuine conversation about whatever that idea is. The moment that thing is like ingrained on my heart and is become part of me, yep. anyone that challenges that point of view is attacking me personally and I'm naturally going to react defensively. And so I think that kind of self-awareness of understanding that you are not your labels and you can have genuine cordial disagreements and arguments about important ideas in the world without it impacting your personal pride that's kind of the direction we need to be heading towards yeah 100 agree an important topic and uh, yeah thanks for bringing it up let's move on to our next segment looking ahead so this one's a quite a short one this week, um, but I was basically just scrolling through YouTube um, and came across this link that um, in CES uh, this year, Sony have made a car. So very interesting, uh, clicked on it and, uh, you know, kind of tried to look into a bit more to see what, what this is all about. And uh, basically this was a, a complete prototype. Um, it is not planned uh, to be a production model. Um, it's really Aww. just, <laughs> it's really just there to <laughs> illustrate that 
they are they manufacture so many components they may as well be in the automotive industry so if we look at some of the innovations on this prototype for example uh, rear view cameras replacing the mirrors um, it's got the self-driving sensors um, which obviously are not mainstream completely yet but it's it's future proof um, and uh, basically the screen and the interface obviously Sony being involved in making computers and inter interfaces and all of that type of stuff um, it's it's all the way there I mean I think the biggest reason why we got that disappointment there from Barry is actually the design of this thing because it is absolutely beautiful um, it's it's kind of a cross between a Tesla and a Porsche. Um, sleek, sleek lines um, in terms of the color and the finish that they picked as well. Um, kind of a cross between a matte and a, a sort of sheen. Um, and so, yeah, I completely agree with you there, Barry. I really want to see this car on the roads. Yeah, it's one of those things where it was a great marketing ploy, it seems, because if I had seen that thing across the crowded room, I would go directly there, right? <laughs> and it was, as you say, it's a beautiful, beautiful car. And the design was one, probably one of the better designs cars I've seen in a, in a while. Yeah. And I've got this, obviously, this this background knowledge of the Tesla Cybertruck <laughs> in the back of my mind, which is <laughs> quite different to this car. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's a great, a great example of another trend we were chatting about earlier in the episode of this experiential design. Yeah. And at CES, you've got everyone trying to show off their various products. And so there's lots of cell phones and lots of laptops and lots of robots and that kind of stuff. A car like that in the middle of the showroom is a great way to get attention and to get people coming towards you. And then to show off all the various little piece, pieces of technology that Sony manufactures is really, really cool. So yes, I'm disappointed it's not going to be a real thing. It would be interesting to see them enter that market. Yeah. Um, but a fascinating experiential way of showing off the various technology in a way that's certainly going to stick with people who were there. Hey, you never know. Um, with the way that cars are evolving and becoming a lot less um, you know, mechanical and, and uh, technology and uh, all, all of those types of things becoming more and more important. So let's see what happens from there. Um, let's move on to the next one. Develop and grow. So on to develop and grow, um, you know, as we discussed last week, I've been having a couple of lunch and learn sessions at the company I'm working at. And uh, one of the speakers this week was a guy by the name of John Salmon. Um, he was part of the Heads Together campaign. We were speaking about the Royals earlier. Um, and uh, they obviously started speaking about mental health. I think it was two years back. Um, you know, he was part of that story. And uh, if we look at, you know, some of the, some of the things that he spoke about, um, you know, I just thought it was a, a great talk. And uh, and we really need to just talk a bit more about mental health. So let's have a look at, uh, you know, some of some of the reflections that he um, basically gave us in his story. Um, so essentially, um, it, it it had been I think about sixteen years that had passed since he had this uh, this episode, and he had kind of just suppressed this completely. Um, and it was really only in the point of writing it down on a piece of paper. We've spoken about journaling before, that he was actually able to detach himself from it um, to realize that you know what he's gone through was was, was quite a quite a significant thing, and to and to start talking about it, um, which is which is I find uh, the most important. Um, part so if we if we look at his journey um you know there were, there were some very dark things that he went through his father had committed suicide um he had um essentially taken a bit too much on um, at his workplace and had really just woken up one morning in a very dark place couldn't get out of bed um and yeah essentially didn't know didn't know what to do he was just completely stuck in his own uh, you know in, in his own mind really um and uh, was actually admitted to hospital um as a result of that um after being released from hospital he actually tried to commit suicide himself 
um, which was unsuccessful. Um, and I think the real interesting thing to chat about here is that suicide in the UK is the biggest killer of men under the age of 45. So for me, the fact that we're not talking about this enough is uh, absolutely shocking because clearly um, it is something that is, uh, you know, quite quite a, quite a big phenomenon and, uh, and and something that we need to address. Um, so yeah, basically because of the stigma, um, I, I mentioned he suppressed it for 16 years. It was essentially because of the stigma surrounding mental health. Now it's not something 16 years ago you you wouldn't think you'd be able to go to a group of friends, you know, with a beer in hand and 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 say, hey, I had a breakdown. Um, and you know this is this is something that we need to completely break down because. Um, a lot of the times we feel like we, we're fighting these battles on our own and one of the most useful tools we have is each other. And uh, stigmas like these basically, um, you know, shut those tools off from our accessibility. Um, so, you know, basically these were his sort of three actions to take. Have a conversation and trust your instincts. Um, there's this basically this hashtag called uh, hashtag ask twice, which I've never seen before, but um, for me, really interesting. So... If you ask your friend, you know, how they are, you've obviously known them for a while. You can see they're not completely right. Their first thing, their first sort of response is going to be, yes, I'm fine. Um, and ask twice really just tries to to get you to to peel that veil away a little bit, a little bit more. If asked after the second time, you know, they're, they're not keen to to divulge, fine. Maybe the next time they will. Um, but but ask twice. Have those conversations, you know, look care about the people around you and uh, and see 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 when these these types of mood changes uh, come through um and yeah i mean looking looking after your own mental health so things like meditation you know checking in as to how you're feeling all the time things like journaling like we spoke about th these are tools to to help us check in um a lot of the times we we've got thousands of things going on and we never actually stop and think about how we're feeling in a particular moment. Um, exercise, be kind to yourself. Um, and then basically, uh, for those in the UK, um, there's a tool called Hub of Hope, which I've not heard about before, but basically it's an app that it really just is a, a big database of all contacts that you could need um, if ever you're going through anything. So if you haven't heard of Hub of Hope, please do just note it on the back of your mind. Um, if ever you notice anyone who's going through anything or if somebody doesn't look um, to be themselves, you know, certainly refer them in that direction. Um, so, I mean, that's that's basically the gist of the talk um, for me. Obviously, just a tale of, of a guy who's gone through a couple of things, um, as I'm sure a lot of us have in life. And, uh, you know, really now looking back on on how stigma affected him not being able to talk about it. That's really interesting, and there's a lot to unpack there, and, and a lot of it actually resonated with me. Uh, I think yep. that's, that stigma we talk about is a very male thing in a way. I think that the, the women in our lives have been encouraged their entire life to talk through things, and a lot of their friendships um, kind of revolve around sharing emotion and talking through emotion and whatnot, and there's this kind of stereotype of the women who go at the braai and making the salad, and they go and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, yep. and the guys go and talk about like much more shallow things, and they have a different kind of interaction. And so, like you say, it's been it's been stigmatized for a man to talk to his other male friends and admit that he's going through something, or admit that he's not as strong as he wants to be, yeah. because of that outdated idea of what masculinity is. And so, we've seen over the last kind of five or six years, I would say, this this change around what modern masculinity actually means, and it actually means some sort of vulnerability and some yeah. sort of ability to open up and to talk about the things that are, are dark in our side, you know, in, inside of us, and, and the things we're struggling with. And this kind of talking and this kind of expressing emotion, it goes against everything we've ever been taught as to what a man is. Yep. 
And so it's kind of a responsibility on us to change that mindset and change that paradigm. And, and for the men that come after us, for our, for our sons and our grandsons, etc., is ensuring that we, we, we pass on that message that talking through these things is not only important, but it's, it's the solution. It, it's what helps you get through things, right? Yeah. Your own brain is, is such, such a dark place sometimes, and if you only leave it in there and you expect to outthink yourself, you're not going to work. You're going to get into Definitely. spirals, and your brain is amazing at finding evidence of negative things yeah. if you're looking for negative things, yeah. right? Whereas if I'm able to speak to a friend who knows me well and I can talk through things or I can talk with a therapist or I can write about it or journal about it, it gives me that ability to see things for what they are and not what they're in my what not, not what's in my head itself. Definitely. And so that stigma is is changing slowly, but it needs to change faster, I would say. Yep. Like you say, suicide is such an such a crucial issue to be talking about right now. And it's one of those things that we kind of ignore because it's so taboo and it's difficult to talk about. It's difficult to talk about those kind of issues. Um, and kind of like we chatted about the Me Too uh, in, in one of the previous episodes, the more light we shine on these taboo issues, the better it can be. So the more opportunities we have to see role models speaking out about things they've struggled with, see role models, or not even role models, but seeing friends of yours admit to each other that they're going through a tough time yeah. and are looking for help, all of a sudden that, that creates, I'm going to use the term groundswell again, of a new type of masculinity and a new type of humanity yeah. that comes when we, again, when we put our ego aside for the moment and we admit that we're not as strong as we think we are. 100%. Uh, such an interesting one and uh, such an important one. I, I definitely think we need to also start thinking about our, our friendships and, and the value that they, that they you know, give, give to our lives. And, uh, you know, if you don't feel like you could have a conversation with a particular person, um, you know, I think now that we're starting to talk about things a lot more, I think it might even be time to, uh, to look at that friendship and, 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 and try and, you know, try and maybe surround yourself with, with people who you can be a lot more honest and open with obviously there's you know there's different tiers of friends um i'm not saying that you need to you know at the at the water stand at work give your whole life story um that's that's not it here at all um but i think it is important um to know who it is that you can confide in um and uh, and for me i i definitely know myself um you know having also you know, had had a couple of difficult times in the last uh, last sort of year or two. Um, I, I definitely know that being able to have a couple of discussions with some friends um, has has been a massive help and uh, and has certainly helped me sort of get out of it. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely agree with you there. I think I think we we need we need more of these uh, movements um, in the right direction and uh, and mental health. You know, just because uh, you know just because we are all quite open to the idea of exercising and caring about our physical health, sleeping well, eating right, all of that type of thing. I think for a long time we have, um, you know, just looked over something that is equally important, which is mental health. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, looking at our internal dialogue, looking at how it is that we're feeling. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I think it's great that it's getting a lot more uh, press. So on that one point of being kind to ourselves, it kind of made me think a little bit, um, and especially since moving over to the UK. Now, I, ha I have personally always done this, but I definitely noticed that in the UK, it's, it's a lot more of a thing. And that is, for every single set of possible circumstances, saying sorry. Um, which I don't know why we do it too much, but it's that internal dialogue that I'm fairly sure, I mean, I'm definitely no professional in this, but I'm fairly sure has uh, ramifications and is, is sort of intensified the more we do it. 
Yeah, it's 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 something that I've I find it quite amusing that it's a it's a habitual thing we've got into a lot of us, where we almost we are proactively apologizing even when we haven't done anything wrong, yeah. right? So yeah. something comes out not the way we want it to or we, we think we've overstepped the mark a little bit or we get a certain facial expression from somebody <laughs> else and we will proactively apologize because we want to avoid conflict at all costs. Yep. Um, and I think there's there are times, obviously, to apologize and, ap- and apologies are a very important part of society sure. and w- to admit when you actually have done something that's actually wrong. But when you're doing it habitually and out of uh, out of a regular routine, what I think you're actually doing is you're apologizing for your your kind of your status and your being in that moment. I have this I have this vivid memory of I, I went to a public speaking course a couple of years ago, and uh, the one thing the guy really stood out for me was he said that a lot of speakers will stand up on stage, and their body language and everything will just show that they are apologizing that the people yep. about to listen to them have to now listen to them for the next <laughs> 10 to 15 minutes. And so that body language of, oh, I feel nervous, I feel insecure about myself, therefore I want to apologize already because my speech isn't going to be as good as you think it's going to be. <laughs> that kind of that kind of that kind of attitude is what we carry into our normal day lives. And so some sort of self-confidence and self-esteem to be able to say that I'm valued and I, I deserve to be here and I want to stand in, and, be, and be present in the situation and I'm going to make mistakes and I don't have to proactively apologize for things. Yeah. I think it's a good way of trying to interrupt your patterns and think carefully about being present in that moment and not trying to think what the other person is thinking about you, right? Yeah. I find that I say sorry when I'm already creating a story about what I think is going on in the other person's head about what I've just said or what I've just done. And that often is way off the mark, but I'm just trying to protect against that hurt that if they're going to be offended by what I say. Um, And so, yeah, in in an overly politically correct world and a very, very like safe spaces and the far left is getting all sorts of things, all sorts of things wrong at the moment. um, We need to be more careful about that word. It it holds so much power if we use it effectively if we overuse it, it becomes it becomes a, a tool of, of, of poor mental health. Completely agree there. Um, I mean, yeah, just in terms of, uh, you know, how we use it just habitually, um, it is it is crazy. I mean, if you think about sending an email and the first line is, sorry for the delayed response, you're straight away drawing attention to the fact that it's late. Um, and secondly, you're, you're, you're apologizing off, off of the bat. Um, and, you know, that, that straight away casts doubt on your, your confidence and ability and all of those types of things. So, you know, instead saying something like, thank you for giving me time to review um, is a completely different way of saying it um, and has completely different ramifications. Now, a lot of these, a lot of these infer- inferences that we make in our mind, like, like you mentioned with the body language of, of the speaker, um, is something that you, you don't even realize is happening, but subconsciously, everyone is reading it. Everyone is privy to this. Everyone is seeing it. Um, and I think your, your point of esteem and self-esteem is, is an important one. Um, and, and certainly I am definitely guilty of, of, of apologizing where it's not necessary at all. Clearly that is the, the esteem showing itself on the outside and, uh, definitely needs to do some work to, to fix that. So let's move on to our question from a listener. What's on your mind? Hey gents, a quick question for you guys, something I've been thinking about quite a bit lately. Um, when it comes to mental health and mental wellness, it's um, it's gone mainstream and the bubble has popped. People are talking about their issues, whether it's depression, anxiety, or even 
worse uh, towards bipolar, all those sorts of things, which is great um, that it's that people are more comfortable, that they don't feel ashamed and are able to talk about these things. Uh, but similarly to the, you know, the, the health bubble, health and wellness and, and fitness, in the last 10 years, everybody's had their um, own diet and there's so many different types of diets and ways of eating and everybody who uh, has their own swears by their own and the same thing seems to be happening when it comes to uh, therapy and how we how we alleviate uh, mental issues uh, that people are struggling with so i saw an instagram post of a lady saying that she just needs to see you for one session for 30 minutes you don't need to go to a psychologist or a psychotherapist for years on end for hour sessions at a time um, and so the market seems to be getting very competitive in terms of um, you know, the commoditization of, of, of mental health. Um, and I just want to see what are your thoughts on that? Um, where do you see that going in 2020? Um, yeah, keen to see your thoughts. Great. So thanks for your question, Ray. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this actually fits in perfectly to our current episode, um, which is obviously, uh, we just spoke a little bit about mental health a few seconds ago. Um, and I think it, it is quite relevant. We've seen a lot of um, definitely a wave um, in terms of us being able to speak about these kinds of things. And on the back of that wave, of course, obviously, you get a lot of people who profess to be professionals and a lot of people who uh, potentially, um, you know, are, are kind of out there for the wrong reasons, looking to sort of profit um, over over somebody's uh, angst or over somebody's anxiety over, over somebody's uh, internal worries um so yeah i mean what do you think barry do you think over the course of this next year we're going to see uh, a lot more people um kind of advertising services who are not actually qualified um i mean i i certainly even in the last week one of the other speakers um was a guy who who is doing this he's doing life coaching he's doing all of these kinds of things and he actually has no professional qualifications in this field um, um, so I think it's a fascinating question. And uh, yeah, I mean, what are your views? Definitely. It's, it's something that I worry about because, as you say, the trend is, is getting to a stage where opportunistic people see opportunities to make money yep. and see opportunities to build brands for themselves and build audiences for themselves, regardless of whether they have the actual chops to deal with these difficult mental issues. And I kind of see it as as similar to the guys who do the permit schemes or who do like these motivational seminars where they're going to change your life in an hour. Yeah. And what they do is they sell hope, right? So they sell hope. So they use marketing tactics and they use their ability to be charismatic, again, to speak with conviction where maybe it isn't the conviction behind the scenes and actually convince people who are in vulnerable situations who are feeling like they need a change in their lives. And they say that this course, well, your, your $100 course is going to change everything for them and change the way they think about the, their, their life. And unfortunately, with all of this kind of stuff, you find that the people who buy these kind of courses end up buying 10 or 12 or 14 different things because nothing de delivers a silver bullet that it, that it promises, yep. right? And especially with mental health, it's not something that just gets solved like this. It isn't the kind of thing that you can buy a product or a service that then sells it for you. And even if you're paying someone, say, as a therapist or whatnot, someone to have like personal coaching or life coaching, etc., I think it's very important that they have some sort of actual psychological training before Definitely. you even look at them. Yep. I'm very skeptical of this life coach kind of trend where, as you say, people will just decide, okay, I'm a life coach. And then all of a sudden they start taking on clients and they give some sort of advice that they've read online or in books or whatnot. And some of them might be well-meaning and some of them might really help clients. Yep. 
But with this kind of mental stuff, it's so, so tricky. And you've got to be in a position where you've been trained medically, you've been trained psychologically to understand how to deal with the patient and where your responsibilities lie and how much into the person's life you're supposed to be getting as a therapist or as a counselor. Um, and so having dated a psychologist in the past, I, I got a real understanding of, of what that responsibility actually entails. Definitely. And it's a serious, serious thing to take on. If you're going to take on that role for somebody, it's a real responsibility that needs to be taken very seriously. And so I worry about these get-rich-quick schemes and these quickly I'm going to solve your problems overnight if you just pay me some money. And unfortunately, the kind of clientele they're serving to don't, don't see that because they desperately want their problem to be solved. Yeah. And so in the same way as the pyramid schemes, by selling hope, these people are going to, are going to make lots of money and they're going, to, they're going to take advantage of these people. And so for a long time, I've been wondering if we need regulation or we need some sort of um, legal status or some sort of governmental control over these services and whether we should be accrediting various people for various jobs and not allowing people without that accreditation to, to perform their duties. Um, obviously, it's difficult to enforce, but I think that kind of regulation is what we need to think about as this trend continues to grow and as more and more people come onto the bandwagon. Completely agree. I mean, in terms of enforcing it, I, I definitely agree it'll be tough to enforce. But um, it's one of those where, um, you know, a society needs to kind of form. And only when it is um, as well known as, uh, you know, some of the other big ones like the healthcare, you know, law, uh, you know, ours in, in terms of accounting as well. When that society is well established and well known, um, you know, people who are thinking about going and, uh, and you know, spending time with these uh, individuals um, do make sure that you know, they themselves are happy that they have those uh, accreditations. And, uh, you know, this is this is definitely not uh, to try and set up a body that is, is just there to, to collect members' money um, unnecessarily. This is this is something that's there for the right reason. Um, l like you said, you know, it, it's, it's quite a quite a key, quite a key role, um, you know, a, a really, a really important um, role that somebody's uh, confiding all of their um, you know, insecurities in, in into a particular person, and and I think I think like you said, uh, some sort of qualification it should definitely be um, you know the first the first protocol there. Um, so yeah, I completely agree. Hopefully, we don't see too much um, you know op opportunistic uh, measures online. Um, but if you yourself are going through anything, um, certainly make sure that uh, whoever you speak to, um, if it is in a professional sense, if you're paying someone, um, definitely make sure that they uh, they have the you know right um, background and and have have sufficient experience and uh, and qualifications to to actually give you that kind of advice. And also more so than just qualifications, make sure it's the right fit for you. Yeah. So if you go into that environment and you go for one or two sessions and you're not feel something doesn't feel right, your gut doesn't doesn't feel right, change, right? Yeah. Find someone that really fits you. There's such a wide range of different approaches and different ways of looking at these problems. And so don't think that the first therapist you go to has to be your therapist for life, right? You can decide at any time to go and change it up. And so take some time and be skeptical and, and be take it seriously, the job of finding that person because they are such an important piece of trying to solve that problem. Absolutely. Um, so I think that brings us to the close um, this week again. Thanks for uh, being along on this journey um, on our 10th episode. I mean, I think it's I think it's great that we're here. Um, I know it's such a small number, but if you actually think about all of the things we've discussed in these uh, in these 10 weeks, um, it's it's quite a massive task. And uh, and actually, we, we kind of hinted at our, our YouTube channel of Across the Pond Clips, um, which is slowly content is starting to be released there. Um, but this is when I actually really 
realize how much it is that we've covered over these last 10 weeks. Um, when we actually split these out into separate clips, don't you think we've come quite a long way already? Yeah, and that's what I love about this thing is that the wide-ranging subject matters have been really interesting for me and has really pushed me to think about different things. And we hope that if you're listening to this right now, you're also being forced to think a bit outside the box and about things you necessarily might not have come across before. And that's, and that's, that's our objective here is to expose everyone to ideas and thoughts and debates and interesting things happening in the world that are outside of your traditional kind of news stories and traditional ways of thinking. And so we hope that's the case for you. It's certainly the case for me and I think I speak on behalf of Chad as well. Definitely. We're learning a hell of a lot during this. And so we intend to keep doing this for as long as we can. And so if you're enjoying this, we really appreciate you having on board. And if, if there's a friend of yours that really enjoys this kind of stuff, please send this to them. Like send them a, send them a note and uh, recommend us to them. We'd love to grow our audience and, and get be able to reach more people and learn more about each other. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. Thanks for tuning in to episode 10. This was Across the Pond. Oh. Across the pond